0: Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians, St. Paul's, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, his epistle, as it's called, and an epistle is just basically that, it's a letter. His first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, as we continue in our Eucharist series, and uh, I trust that you received... Uh, Your cup and wafer as well. Thank you, Wally, for for getting that around to all of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're looking at verses 14 to 22. And our assignment this morning um, with the Spirit and the Word is this. Would you say this with me? Eating the Word. Say that with me. Eating the Word. Say it again. Eating the Word we're looking at the Eucharist this morning as divine human love feast. Divine human love feast. Listen to Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 22. So, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I am saying is true. When we bless the cup of the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we are stronger Than he is. Christianity, declared the great late, great Archbishop William Temple, Christianity is the most, listen to this, most materialistic of all religions. Now, his meaning was not what most of us are thinking he meant, even now, as we're considering those words. We, most of us, immediately conclude, due to really, over time, the careless use and abuse of the English language, we quickly associate a negative moralism with this word materialistic. Christianity is the most materialistic Of all religions. However, what William Temple had in mind was the commitment of genuine Christianity to the faith that God really became human. He really took on material form, he really became human in Jesus of Nazareth. And all that follows from that in terms of the Christian's commitment to bringing the kingdom of God as Jesus Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. But here in this passage of Scripture that we have opened before us this morning, we see another aspect of just how materialistic, if I can use that word as William Temple uses it, just how materialistic the Christian faith really is in the positive sense that William Temple is using this word. The material world, including food and drink, are not just life-sustaining They become vehicles. Vehicles. Everybody say vehicles. They become vehicles. The expression of the God or goddess, as Paul is dealing with an issue here, flee from idol worship, food sacrificed to idols. What Paul is wanting us to see and what he's wanting the Corinthians to see is that our material world, including food and drink, which is the matter that he's specifically dealing with, food and drink offered to idols, and we're considering, of course, the food and drink of the Eucharist, they become vehicles in the expression of our worship. In the pagan sense of the God or goddess, or as Christ followers, God. You are worshiping as you are eating. The point Paul is making is that there is no such thing for us as Christ followers, but there's no such thing for the pagan worshiper either. There's no such thing as casual worship. No such thing. If it's truly worship, it's not something casual. In the Lord's Supper, we really do share in the body and blood of the Messiah. We are people who share in the very life of God. The bread and the wine become materialistic, again, using that word as William Temple intended it, they become materialistic vehicles of His presence. The bread and the wine. This passage of Scripture in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and especially verses 16 and 17, stands out as one of the most explicit statements about the theological significance of the Lord's Supper. Not only in the body of St. Paul's writing, which is a significant portion of the New Testament, but also in the entire canon of Scripture. This is a very significant passage for the theology that it carries for us and our understanding of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper. And so for this reason alone, it deserves our full attention and our study. Paul was an apostolic pastor whose attention was focused by the real problems of Christian living in concrete life situations, real life situations. The fact that he here devotes so much space to the Eucharist in his Corinthians correspondence is a clear indication that there was something radically wrong with the Corinthians' approach to this sacrament. But there are also lessons here for us. I'm convinced that this passage is critically important to any attempt to truly hear what the New Testament has to say about the Lord's Supper and the church's Eucharistic thought and practice, and how we live this out. Paul makes the same insistence here that John does as we studied in our passage from the last few weeks, John chapter 6. Paul is making the same insistence here that John brings out to us. That the controversial eating... And drinking in question must include actual physical eating and drinking. And and this is Eucharistic language speaking of the sacrament in which Jesus' body and blood are in a mysterious way offered to us to believers, to Christ followers, to be eaten and drunk. In fact, for Paul and the Corinthian believers, this understanding is a presupposition. It's a given. Let me set the table a little bit for us. Not intending a pun there at all, but let me set the table for us if you will, so that we understand what's going on here as we study this passage. Let me try to give you a little bit of the context of this portion of Scripture because it sits within a greater context and story going on. Paul intends here to address several deeply troubling issues and quarrels that are going on in the Corinthian church that were brought to his attention by envoys from Corinth. We learn early in the letter, if you were to look at chapter 1 and verse 11, we learn early in this letter that this this is the case. Paul has received correspondence that there are things taking place. Matters of idol worship, matters of uh, sexual issues, matters of divisions and strife and so on. And so he's now endeavoring to deal with these issues. In fact, with this paragraph that we're looking at this morning together, Paul finally brings to a conclusion the long argument that actually began in chapter 8 and verse 1. Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols. That's what it says in chapter 8 verse 1. In chapter 7 and verse 1, we discover that the Apostle has also received a letter from the Corinthians congregation A letter full of questions that require detailed and nuanced answers. Among other bad news, Paul is disturbed to hear that many Corinthian Christians claiming moral and spiritual authority are engaged in banqueting at the tables of the pagan temples. And, or engaged with buying and eating food previously offered to idols. And so he devotes a major section of this letter to address this outrage. Our passage today that we have opened in front of us and keep it open in front of you, our passage of study today fits into the third and final part of this major section of this letter where Paul is dealing with these issues. Now, even a hasty reading, if you were to just breeze through 1 Corinthians this afternoon, even a hasty reading of 1 Corinthians makes it clear that the Corinthian Christians regularly participated in the Lord's Supper. In the Eucharist. It was was very much a part of their lives together in a a frequent fashion. And that they did so in the context of a larger meal. When they would share the Lord's Supper together, it would usually follow a greater meal that they had shared together. By greater I mean they, they, had, they had had an actual full course meal that they had shared together because they were often doing, it was very much a part of their life and rhythm as the church to be eating together, sharing together, praying together. It was a very communal dynamic. And at the conclusion of these meals that they would often share together, they would also share the Eucharist together, the Lord's Supper. And they did so frequently. What is more, as the text that we have opened this morning makes clear, the Corinthian Christians also believed that the Eucharist was in fact a communal participation in Christ's body and blood. It was a communal participation in Christ's body and blood. And and no doubt they had this understanding because this was something Paul himself had emphasized to them and taught them. For whatever reason, however, and, and we're not given specifically all the reasons, they had not allowed that conviction to influence their day-to-day life together. And this was the issue that was arising and that Paul was made aware of and that now he's addressing. And so as a result of this failure, Paul had to show them in the starkest terms that the shared partaking of the Lord's Supper makes any dabbling in idolatry not only scandalous and risky, but also absurd. It is implicitly to deny the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus. The worship of idols and sharing in the table of the Lord is radically incompatible, is what Paul is trying to say. The two don't go together. Because... They are one at the Lord's table with Christ and His community. It simply makes no sense for them to partake of the table of demons. It is nonsensical, in fact, because they understood, remember what I said just a moment ago, that when they partook of, the commun- of, of communion, Holy Communion, the Lord's table, the Last Supper, the Eucharist, When they partook of that, it was a communal participation together with the body and blood of Christ. And that was also the understanding in pagan worship and pagan meals, food that was offered, meat. That when you shared that together, you were participating in that together. So Paul's saying, how can you do both? How can you be communally joined together with Christ, but also with these other pagan idols. And essentially what you're doing is, is, is worshiping demons and the spirits that stand behind those idols. He says the idols are really nothing. They have ears they can't hear. They have eyes they can't see, as the psalmist puts it. But it's what stands behind those idols. The malevolent spirits and demonic activity that is very much a reality for the Corinthians and for us even today. So Paul says it's absurd. You can't do both as a follower of Christ. The crunch of Paul's argument is that those who sit at the Messiah's table and share in His life, the life that is of the human embodiment of the one true God, cannot and must not flirt with the possibility of sharing the life of the powers and the malevolent forces that twist and distort God's world and God's image bearing human children. You cannot participate in both, he says. Paul hopes to save them from this nonsense by directing their attention to the definitive counter reality of Christ. Christ encountered in Christian worship like we're experiencing here this morning. Christ encountered particularly in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The Eucharist that we will share together in a few moments. When we worship, there's no such thing as casual worship, Paul is saying. When we worship, whether it be the false God or the one true God, when we worship, we are encountering Him. And so you, this isn't something that you can mess around with, He's saying. Because if you're giving yourself to encounter demons, there's going to be a serious price to pay. Instead, give yourself to encounter Christ in worship together, in prayer around the Lord's table together. So he's seeking to direct their attention back to Christ where it should be, where it is intended to be. So all throughout 1 Corinthians, there's this Eucharistic tapestry that we see. The budding theology of the Eucharist, it threads itself through the whole letter. And it holds together the whole fabric of Paul's letter to the First Corinthians. And this is perhaps due to the fact that the Eucharist gave Paul a language. It gave him a vocabulary, so to speak. A vocabulary with which he could both diagnose the Corinthians' disease and prescribe a cure. The Eucharist motif, the Eucharist theme, shows up in various places throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. And it colors the entirety of the letter. Not only as Paul deals with the issue here of things sacrificed to idols, but also his diatribe against Carnal factionalism. There were contentious groups in the church, self seeking groups, causing division. That doesn't happen today, does it? So he was dealing with that in chapters 1 to 4. There was sexual disorder among them and immorality. And he was dealing with that in chapters 5 to 7 as well as his correctives for the Corinthians' worship in chapters 11 to 14. So his response to all of these matters arises and works back to the claim that the Corinthians are in fact one body in Christ. The Eucharist becomes the centerpiece through which Paul weaves his whole argument in dealing with these issues. All of these issues. And that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. All of them, his, it's, uh, all of the, the matters that he confronts and addresses, they, they all connect to the Eucharist. To the fact that they are one body in Christ because of their sharing of His body and blood at the Eucharist meal. His statements about the resurrection and the resurrected body in chapter 15 are also laced with the Eucharist language. Which explains how the Corinthians can share in and be enlivened by sharing Christ's body in the present. Even while they await the future resurrection. So long as they rightly discern the Lord's body. So, so every time we partake of the Eucharist together, loved ones, we are foretasting the fullness of God's kingdom. It's an appetizer, if you will. It's a taste of things that, yes, we know now, but are still fully yet to come. That tension between the kingdom being now, as Jesus said when he preached, the kingdom is at hand, it's right now, but yet there's still much to fully come, there's more to come. Tell somebody, there's more to come. There's more to come. And so every time we share the Eucharist, we are acknowledging these things. That we are one. One body. That we are Christ's body. As we hold these these material elements that speak of all of this, they become vehicles of this to us. They become vessels of this. We are one body. We are united with Christ's body. His body and blood. And in that, we are also united with His resurrection. So there is a resurrection that we will yet fully know. Death is not an enemy. Death is not the final thing. There is a resurrection to come. So all of these things that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians find their way in and through the Eucharist. We must discern this. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, rightly discern the body. The failure to discern... We need to to pray that the Lord, by His Spirit, continues to develop and nurture within us a sharp discernment. The failure to discern and embody this foundational reality in the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, and all that it represents and represents every time we share it, The failure to discern these things is in fact the root of many sins plaguing the Corinthian community. And that's why Paul keeps coming back to it. And surely it is the root of much sin that plagues the church today. In every form. How can you be divided? How can you have factions among you? You are one in Christ, the Eucharist. How can you worship and and flirt with the, the, the spirit and the idolatry of the world when you are Christ's, the Eucharist? To put it another way, if the Corinthians had discerned the Lord's body, that is, if they had recognized what it means to share in Christ's body and blood, they would not and indeed they could not have split into factions. There could not have been any divisions among them if they truly discerned and understood. Or given themselves to promiscuity. Or dared to flirt with idols. Or despised the weaker members of the community. Or abused the gifts and ministry of the Holy Spirit, which was another matter Paul dealt with if they truly discerned, Paul was saying, and truly understood what it meant, recognized what it meant to share in Christ's body and blood, to share the Eucharist together, there would not have been any of these issues. Perhaps flipping it on its head would, would help us better understand what, what we're getting at here. That is, by reversing some of the claims of the letter. By stating them in positive rather than negative terms. Something curious happens. One perhaps uncovers other signs of a robust Eucharistic sacramentality. Watch this. In other words, what we're saying is if believers eat the loaf and drink the cup in a worthy manner rather than an unworthy manner, they participate in the body and blood of the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 27 of First Corinthians. And if they eat and drink rightly discerning the body and blood rather than wrongly or not discerning at all if they drink rightly discerning they receive salvation with all of its provisions of love and unity and healing and wholeness rather than judgment chapter 11 verse 29 Physical healing. Paul says because you are not rightly discerning the body and blood of Christ, that's why many among you are sick. You're not discerning the provision that has been provided for you in Christ and remains present with you in the vehicle and vessel of the Eucharist. As a reminder, as a representation of the sacrifice and the provision of Christ. Victory of Christ. Because Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the Christ following community, the Corinthians, you and me, those given to follow Christ, We can eat and drink, not in despair, but in hope, in great hope. A literary reading of 1 Corinthians shows how tightly these threads of Paul's arguments are interwoven. And these threads reveal to us significant things about the Eucharist. Watch this together. Having been told in the letter's introduction, chapter 1, verse 9, that the believers have been called into the fellowship of God's Son. Would you say that with me? The fellowship of God's Son. We have been called into the fellowship of God's Son. And having been told this, the reader of 1 Corinthians later discovers here in our text, in fact, that this fellowship comes about at least in part through participation in the church's sacred meal. So Christ followers are called to fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord and that very fellowship is realized In our lives, as we participate in His body and blood through the Eucharist. Having first heard that Paul wants only to proclaim Christ crucified. He says that in chapter 1, verse 23. I preach Christ and Christ crucified. We preach Christ. In fact, he uses we We preach Christ and Christ crucified. And having first heard that, the reader later finds out that this is the very message of the Lord's Supper. This is the very message the Eucharist delivers. Christ crucified. Indicating that for Paul, the preaching of the Gospel which was an absolute necessity, remained connected inextricably. It couldn't be separated from the church's Eucharistic observance. So as God's people, as we give ourselves to follow Him and live the good news of Jesus and proclaim the good news gospel of Jesus not only with our words, but through the way we live our lives, we cannot effectively and fully do that without understanding and discerning the meaning and the significance and the connection that we must keep with the Eucharist. It becomes our great center and resource. Christ crucified, represented in the Lord's Supper. Now, watch what Paul does repeatedly in this letter. He appeals to Israel's Exodus narrative and to Israel's worship at the temple. You see Paul doing this often, going back to Israel and the Exodus in order to draw illustration and make a point and make a connection And he does this this time with an emphasis on their meals. The first Passover, the manna in the wilderness. We've already considered that together. The sacrifices at the altar. We've looked at that briefly in weeks past as well. So as we've studied in recent weeks, Paul affirms that our God is a God of meals. How many are glad for that? How many enjoy a good meal? Yeah, three of you. The rest of you don't really care whether you're ever fed or not. We serve a God of meals. We're going to enjoy a little bit of fellowship afterwards as well. Some refreshments. We, we, we serve a God of meals. A God who ordains food and drink for His people. How many are grateful for that? Philip's getting hungry back there. (laughs) He ordains food and drink for his people. We must not miss, loved ones, the importance of what Paul says here about eating and drinking of the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Paul really believes that the materialistic, there's that word again, the materialistic elements that we that we partake of, that we hold in our hands even this morning of the Christian family meal, the bread and the wine, as we said at the beginning, he believes that they do become vessels or vehicles of the personal life and enlivening sustenance of the Messiah himself. The cup of blessing which we bless. Look look at it in in verses 16 and 17 again. I hope you still have it open in front of you. The cup of blessing that we bless, he says. It's a sharing in the Messiah's blood, isn't it? He's asking a rhetorical question to make a point. That is, it's a question that we, we don't have to answer because we know the answer. It's a sharing in the Messiah's blood, isn't it? The bread which we break, it's a sharing in the Messiah's body, isn't it? That, of course, is why those who share this cup and loaf become one body together. The Messiah's body. They are, we are, all together nourished and enlivened by His own personal life. Beloved, one of the greatest tragedies in the history of the church, I feel, is that because of all the doctrinal disputes that have taken place over this central Christian meal, the Eucharist, and there have been many, and they still continue even to this day, because of all these disputes Over this central meal many teachers and preachers have thought well maybe it's best not to say too much about what it means because it's just gonna stir things up and so they have not educated people into the full life-giving enjoyment of a central part of our birthright in Christ and properly discerning that. And living in it. And representing it to the world. The communion meal is significant as a covenant-making rite. For indeed, if the Passover constituted Israel as God's people, so then does the Eucharist constitute the church as renewed with Israel in the new creation work of Christ Jesus that continues even now since His resurrection. Loved ones, Paul effectively works here to narrate the Corinthians and us into Israel's story. The new creation story in Christ. Behold, Jesus says, I make all things new. This new creation story that shows them, that shows us that we belong to the one people of God. And so we must live in loving faithfulness to God. As we heard in our Scripture reading earlier from Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Do not be enticed by the Spirit of the flesh and follow the ways of the flesh because the fruit of the flesh is this, this, and this, and it's all destructive stuff. But the fruit of the Spirit and those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God. And the fruit of the Spirit are these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, endurance, kindness. We bear with one another. All of these things connected to the Eucharist. Paul is weaving us into this story, this tapestry of the Eucharist as well as the people of God. And so seen in this way, the Lord's Supper is shown to be nothing less than a continuation of Israel's feasting. So that as the Corinthians and as we gather together at the Lord's table and participate in the Eucharist, We are being Israelized, so to speak. The Eucharist invites us all to turn away from our intrigue and flirtations with the spirit and systems and strange gods of the world in order to share in the victory of Jesus. And to do so faithfully and regularly together. By sharing in His way of life and His new creation way to be human. And every time we partake together of the Lord's table, this is what we are doing. This is the significance and the meaning of what is taking place. It's not just, oh, oh, it's Lord's table Sunday again. Here we go. Well, we've got to get out of here in a few minutes. It's, let's get through this. This is just what we do. And it's just empty routine. And for some of us, we have done this for so long, it's just become empty routine for us. The significance of it has been lost, if it was ever even there in the first place. Because of the failure to be educated and discipled into the significance and the meaning of what this is all about. It's quite evident from the context of our passage today that Paul believes the Corinthians are flirting with idols. And they are just so in danger of committing adultery against God. In eating this meat offered to other gods, entertaining themselves at pagan temples, the Corinthians, Paul says, are arousing Yahweh's jealousy. Exactly as their ancestors did in the wilderness. The Exodus story. Now, notice the language Paul uses, arousing Yahweh's jealousy. That's language of relationship. That's, in fact, marital language. Adultery, that term. What do we use when we say adultery? Well, that's a term that's used in what? In the context of marriage. Interesting. When we make the connection... We understand the logic of Paul's words in the text. Eating at the table of demons is adulterous because coming to the table of the Lord is nuptial. That is, it has to do with marriage. In this regard, then, for Paul, watch this, this gets at our whole focus this morning. The meal, the Eucharist meal, as a divine human love feast. For Paul, the Eucharist is an intimate, even romantic, gesture of Christ. Not only do we serve a God who is a God of meals, he is a romantic. We serve a God who is a hopeless romantic. Can I put it that way to us? He's a hopeless romantic. And and, and the Eucharist is an intimate, even romantic gesture of Christ, the church's bridegroom. In offering the Corinthians, in offering us, His body, His blood, Christ Jesus, the jilted Lover, is wooing them, wooing us, back from other lovers. Offering His best gifts in the attempt to capture His lover's, His bride's heart. Because as the body of Christ, we are also the bride of Christ. Now as surprising and as provocative of such as such reading of this passage may seem, the reader has been prepared for it. If we read the whole of the letter. Paul, earlier in this letter, explicitly links the bodily oneness enjoyed by and enjoined on husband and wife with the mystical oneness of Christ and the believer. You can read about it in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. He's already used language like this. And now he's making the connection of it with the Eucharist. If by joining the joining of their bodies, husband and wife, If by the joining of their bodies they are made one flesh. You recognize the terminology. We hear it often even in marriage ceremonies. If by the joining of their bodies the husband and wife are made one flesh, then in the same way, Paul is saying, to be united with Christ is to be made one body with Him. And the meal of our union is the Eucharist. The meal that celebrates and represents this union is the Eucharist. Just as a husband and wife belong to one another, so do Christ and the church. Of course, As we all know, those of us who are married, this is not perfectly symmetrical. Neither husband nor wife has authority over the other's body, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 4. But the Christ follower has been bought with a price. Chapter 6, verse 20 and must therefore submit to Christ's authority and glorify God how? With his or her body. Even so, because Christ and the church belong to one another, they can and do willingly hand over their bodies to one another in mutual submission. And Christ does not hand over His body to us Lovelessly, but he gives himself in surrender in the more excellent way of love, laying down the example that we, the church, are to follow. And we are to recognize this every time we partake together. Jesus is saying, just as I have lovelessly given, lovelessly, not not lovelessly, given myself to you, as I've given myself to you in the more perfect way, in love, laying down my life, so are you to give yourselves for one another. So in this light... The Lord's Supper shows itself to us to be one of the ways in which Christ's body is there for the church. It's there for us. He is there for us. And we can see that the nuptial joining of the bodies of Christ and His church is realized Eucharistically as a divine human love feast that we share together around the Lord's table. And this bodily oneness is not something immaterial, but it's very corporeal. It's very materialistic. if we can use that word again in the positive sense that it has been presented to us by William Temple. It is very bodily. It is a joining effected by the same Spirit who raised Christ physically and bodily from the dead. To say then that believing Christ followers are made one spirit with Christ, that you and I are made one with Christ, is to say that we belong to the same new creation order as He does. Let this get into your hearts and your spirits. You belong to the same new creation order. There is a new order in your life. And it is a new creation order. And it's the same order that Jesus belongs to as your brother. And as the resurrected Lord. The body they are the body that we are as a community already participates and in some sense anticipates the resurrected body promise of 1st Corinthians 15 this meal that we share together loved ones along with everything else that it involves it involves the reality that we taste together Of resurrection life now and yet to fully come. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus dwells in you and me. The same spirit that physically and bodily resurrected him desires to fill our lives. We are to be spirit filled people of this spirit of resurrection. Now, and the resurrection that we will yet know as we anticipate the return of our Lord and King. Yeah? Would you stand together with me?